Would you turn in your Bibles to 2 John? As you know, we're reading through the New Testament uh, together and preaching from what we've been reading, which I think is a cool opportunity to look at one of these shorter books, that uh, these little books that are sometimes overlooked. And it is a great, timely letter from the Apostle John. And we're going to read the whole thing because it's not too long. And 2 John verses 1 through 13 says this. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. O Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So this book is about true love. But not the way we generally use that word in our cultural milieu. John is talking about love that accords with truth. According to him, love must accord with truth to really be love. And so he's writing about true love. It's obvious that he's concerned with truth. I mean, uh, he says truth five times in the first four verses. But he also addresses the opposite of truth, which is deception. He's concerned with the state of truth in this congregation and about the deceivers' effect, the the effect that these deceivers will have on the life of the flock. And so he mentions explicitly and implicitly what their deception is like. The explicit heresy is that Christ didn't come in the flesh, right? That's what he says. And so it's probably some form of the ancient heresy of Gnosticism, but I'll talk more about that later. We see, we see more, though, to their deception by what John clarifies, right? If you were writing to, uh, you know, dispel deception, you would correct that deception, right? You would clarify what the truth is. And, and so if you're writing to correct falsehoods and you clarify what the truth is that's being lied about, and we see what truth is being lied about by what John clarifies. So what does he clarify? 
We see the answer to that in verse 6. He clarifies the nature of love. He says, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Which tells me that the deceivers are putting forth some other idea of love, untethered from God's commandments. Which is why I think this message is so applicable for us today. Because this addresses a prevailing and wildly popular lie affecting our society. That love can be, and in, and in some cases must be, separate from the loving guidance of God. So we'll get to that. We're going to take the scenic route. Because there's some things that we have to address first. Because John goes ahead and steals all of our attention and name calls in some pretty intense ways, doesn't he? He calls these deceivers antichrists. And when you say antichrist, some people's ears perk up. And some other people's ears stop listening. Some people think, oh yeah, this is the good stuff. And some people think, oh, this is the crazy stuff. When really it's neither. It's just the normal stuff. And by normal, I mean the way of the world in our time. The truth that John taught us in the last letter, if you remember in 1 John, he said, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. And that's what he's saying here as well. In 2 John, he says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So John teaches that antichrist doesn't just apply to a final figure, but to similar deceivers pervasive throughout our present age. There's like a little kid show my, my daughter watches called uh, PJ Masks, and they're about superheroes, and, and one of the bad guys is this ninja, and all of his minions are these tiny little ninjas, little mini versions of him. It's kind of like that. And the part of the, of the story of history that we are in is referred to as the last days. And all throughout this chapter of history, there are antichrists that are marked by deception. But it's been the last days ever since John wrote this letter. And if you're wondering why the last days is so long, remember what Peter told us whenever he was faced with the same question. He said, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. And so that means from God's perspective, which is the perspective that matters, I'll remind you, it's been much longer than from our perspective and much shorter. I did the math. And if one day is as a thousand years. It's been well over 738 million years. And you thought 2,000 was a long time. And if a thousand years is as a day, it's only been two days and a couple minutes. And so we're, we're so arrogant that we think that our perception of things is the only perception of things that matters. Not true. And, and we are in the last days. And as such, we deal with antichrist deception. It's the normal state of affairs. But the fact that it's normal doesn't make it less dangerous. He says, watch yourselves, right? In verse 8, that's what he says to the people in the first century. Watch yourselves. And that warning has stood throughout church history until today. Watch yourselves. Lest deception creep in and distort and destroy your faith and your love. The term antichrist might be a little misleading if we don't actually look at the context because when we think of being anti-something, we generally think of outright opposing that thing, don't we? Saying, that's no good, I don't want any part of it, and I don't think you should either. But that's not necessarily the way John speaks of being anti-Christ. It can include that, but it's not exclusively that. Anti-Christ, and how he uses the term here, right, speaks of denying key truths about Christ. To the point that there 
essentially teaching about a different Christ. So for the sake of clarity, we should really think of it not as anti-Christ, but as anti-the real Christ, anti-true Christ. Not all antichrists are openly opposed to Christ, but they all distort or even deny what Jesus has taught about who he is and what he has done and what he commands of us. So let's begin to heed John's warning by examining these deceptions. When John talks about the deceivers who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, John is addressing the ancient heresy of Gnosticism, as I said, which is one of the earliest heresies to really catch fire and spread. Gnosticism, the the little quick summary of it, is that it separates the spiritual realm, which is viewed as good, from the material realm, which is viewed as bad. And so, of course, Christ couldn't be in the flesh, according to them, right? Because he's good and the flesh is bad and and not good. So he couldn't be in the flesh. And I know you're thinking that a 2,000-year-old heresy doesn't have anything to do with us. And it also doesn't seem to have anything to do with love, which is what I said this letter is about. But bear with me, because it does matter for us and it does matter for love. Some modern theologians have noticed that we too have our own form of Gnosticism. We too segregate the spiritual realm from the material because we've been so influenced by materialism, materialist reductionism, as I call it, that says we're nothing but matter, explains everything away with material processes and forgets the whole when examining the parts to where love is nothing but a chemical reaction inside someone's brain. People are nothing but moving meat. And this is so pervasive that we all talk like materialists now. Instead of saying, that was exciting, we say, I had an adrenaline rush. Instead of saying, I feel great when I exercise, we say, I got a dopamine high. Instead of saying, I am anxious, we say, I have anxiety. We speak as though our emotions were merely chemical reactions rather than spiritual reactions experienced partly in our bodies through chemical means. And we mix our materialism with our religion to have a modern form of Gnosticism where we confine God to the spiritual dimension of reality and trust in the laws of nature to run the rest of the world on a daily basis. Modern Western Christians worship God on Sunday mornings, but if we're not careful, we can tend to live like materialists Monday through Saturday. Living and thinking as though God is irrelevant to our daily lives. We too are Gnostic in a way. Just instead of saying spiritual is good and everything else is bad, we say spiritual is good and everything else is separate. And we only allow for the incarnation of Christ because we're less consistent thinkers than the Gnostics were in the first century. The author and professor Brian Fickert who uh, in his, uh, wrote a book about the theology of like poverty relief. And in that book, he does a little experiment uh, in his classes because he's a professor at a, at a Christian university. And he asks the students to, each year to tell him what they should do to get a job. And they say things like, we should study hard. We should major in a field with good career options. We should learn how to write a resume. We should use our parents' connections. And he says, there's truth in all these answers. But notice that the student's entire focus is on techniques, on those things that they can do to control the material world. He says, I've done this exercise with approximately 750 students over the years, and only one of them has ever said we should pray. 
Think about the horror of this, he says. Some of the godliest young people in America, at least at the outset, don't instinctively prioritize falling on their knees to pray to their creator, sustainer, and redeemer of work to help with finding a job. It's all about resumes, connections, etc. He says this is evangelical Gnosticism. God is Lord over our spiritual lives, but the rest of life is governed by natural forces that we can master through our hard work and ingenuity. In the book where he writes about this experiment, he explains that it's not the case everywhere. It's just Christians in our context that have been infected with a form of Gnosticism because we try to unite our religion with materialism. But Jesus coming in the flesh means he's Lord over everything. It's not just some vague ethereal spirituality. If we limit Christ's lordship to the spiritual realm, then who is Lord over the rest? I can tell you the biblical answer to that. Satan is. John refers these to these people in the, that he's talking about as deceivers. And I'm telling you, we are being deceived. There is a great lie that runs like a giant fault line beneath much of the foundations of American society. This fault line is one from which all the other cracks and fissures and seismic shifts are emerging. It's not the lie that God doesn't exist. It's a much more subtle lie than that. It's the line that says, even if he does exist, he doesn't matter all that much. And the reason this lie is so much more powerful is because it can affect religious people too. The Christians can, can easily dismiss the, the lie that God doesn't exist as apparent foolishness. Of course he does. But, ev but the lie that even if he does exist, he doesn't matter in certain parts of our life. Now that's a lie that can gain some traction in a Christian heart. And it has. This lie has claimed so much ground in the hearts of Christians in our culture. Once you agree that Christ has little to do with one area of life, it's so much easier to give up another and another and another. This is one of the driving forces behind us starting Bethel Academy. Does God deeply matter in education? Amen. We are being deceived into believing he does not. And we're reaping the, the results of that deception. Christ is the integrating center of this reality that he has made. And he is the only hope for whole human beings. Amen. And our underlying assumption in all of life as Christians should be radically different from what we are always told in our culture in so many ways. Our working assumption is that this God who made everything matters in everything. Christ coming in the flesh means certain things about reality. And therefore affects how we love. The truth about reality must affect how we love. In a brilliant essay titled Man or Rabbit, C.S. Lewis was asked to, to address the question, can't you lead a good life without believing in Christianity? And I, I want to read you the whole thing, but I know I can't. So I'll just settle for reading you a big chunk of it. Because he shows how materialism simply can't lead to true love. He starts off by saying the question, can't you lead a good life without believing in Christianity, sounds as if it were asked by someone who, who says, I don't care uh, whether Christianity is in fact true or not. But one of the things that distinguishes man from other animals like rabbits is that he wants to know things, to find out what reality is really like. And, and Lewis blames foolish preachers for always telling you how much Christianity will help you and how good it is for society to the point that you forget it's not merely medicine. Christianity came, it claims to give accounts of facts that tell you what the real universe is like. 
and knowledge of the facts must make a difference to one's actions. He gives an example saying, suppose you found a man to the point of starvation and wanted to do the right thing. And you had no knowledge of medical science. You'd probably give him a large solid meal. And as a result, your man would die. That's what comes of working in the dark. In the same way, a Christian and a non-Christian may both wish to do good to their fellow man. One believes that men are going to live forever. That they were created by God and so built that they can find their true and lasting happiness only by being united to God. And that they have gone badly off the rails and that obedient faith in Christ is the only way back. The other believes that men are accidental result of blind workings of matter, that they started as mere animals and have more or less steadily improved, that they are going to live for about 70 years, that their happiness is fully attainable by good social services and political organizations, and that everything else is to be judged good or bad simply insofar as it helps or hinders that kind of happiness. Now, between these two groups, there's quite a lot of things which these two people could agree in doing for their fellow citizens, like efficient sewers and hospitals and a healthy diet, but sooner or later, their differences of beliefs would produce differences in practical proposals. Both, for example, might be very keen about education, but the kinds of education they wanted people to have would obviously be very different. Again, where the materialists would simply ask, will a proposed action increase the happiness of the majority? The Christian might have to say, even if it does increase the happiness of the majority, we can't do it. It's unjust. And all the time, one great difference would run through their whole policy. To the materialist, things like nations and classes and civilizations must be more important than individuals because the individual only lives for 70 odd years and the group could last for centuries. But to the Christian, individuals are more important for they live eternally and races, civilizations and the like are in comparison creatures of the day. The Christian and the materialist hold different beliefs about the universe. They can't both be right. The one who is wrong will act in ways which simply don't fit the real universe. And consequently, with the best will in the world, he will be helping his fellow creatures to their destruction. End quote. Thanks for sticking in there. The point is this. If we live and we think in Gnostic ways segregating Christ and spirituality to separate realms, then we're simply living and thinking out of step with reality because that's not the truth about reality. And the truth about reality is that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we will inevitably live and think poorly when we live out of line with that truth. We will live out of step with the true nature of things, which will inevitably lead to negative results. And this includes love and how we love others. Here's what I really hate about materialist reductionism. Besides the fact that it's sad and it's boring, what I really hate is that when you reduce the world, you'll reduce people. You will. This is why you see people as awkward, boring inconveniences in your life. Because you reduce them to something less than they really are. And true love requires taking people seriously, as seriously as a soul-body unity that will endure for eternity which is a living image of the creator of all things. This is why tolerance has taken the place of love in our modern discourse. Amen. Because we've reduced our fellow man and you can only tolerate dull temporary dunces. But you can love holy, eternal souls. 
John Piper has given us a great gift in recounting a list of resolutions that his English professor in college presented as foundational for mental and spiritual health. That professor was named Clyde Kilby. And the list of 10 resolutions are in large part counteracting the materialist reductionism of our day. And I hope you'll be able to see why they would help us not only be healthy in our souls and minds, but also to help us truly and deeply and actively love others well. I only read four of them, but they're so good. Resolved. At least once every day, I shall look steadily up at the sky and remember that I, a consciousness with a conscience, am on a planet traveling in space with wonderfully mysterious things above and about me. Resolved. I shall not fall into the falsehood that this day or any day is merely another ambiguous and plodding 24 hours, but rather a unique event filled, if I so wish, with worthy potentialities. I shall not be fool enough to suppose that trouble and pain are wholly evil parentheses in my existence, but just as likely ladders to be climbed toward moral and spiritual manhood. Resolved. I shall open my eyes and ears. Once every day, I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, a cloud, or a person. I shall not then be concerned to ask what they are, but simply be glad that they are. I shall joyfully allow them the mystery of what Lewis calls their divine, magical, terrifying, and ecstatic existence. Resolved. Even if I turn out to be wrong, I shall bet my life on the assumption that this world is not idiotic, neither run by an absentee landlord, but that today, this very day, some stroke is being added to the cosmic canvas that in due course I shall understand with joy as a stroke made by the architect who calls himself Alpha and Omega. This is the perspective we must reclaim to open our eyes in wonder and to be humbled in joy before our creator and, and Lord in every area of our life. To see the people around us as extraordinary and beloved and brimming with eternal potential. Only then will we have the heart required to really love others with true love. And this ties into the second deception regarding love that John is correcting. That love can be untethered from the truth and commands and teaching of Christ. John makes very clear that such a thing is not true love. It's, it's something else. Because according to him, for love to be love, it must be derived from the source of love. The God of love. Who gives us teaching and commands concerning love. John says in verse 6, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Love, according to John, is a way of walking, meaning a way of living and acting and being in the world. And this walk is guided by, you could even say constrained by, the commands of God. All of this that I just said is radically opposed to the current narrative regarding love. First of all, talking about it as a walk rather than a fall, right? We fall in love. We don't walk in love. We think of love as feelings and emotions and something that happens to us, but true love it, though it involves feelings and emotions, it's not exclusively or even primarily those things. True love is something we do. It's a path we walk. And it's a path that's designated by the commands of God. 
And that's the second aspect of John's definition that's controversial because we think love must be free from any and all constraint. To put boundaries on love is hatred. And there's a couple interesting case studies from this very letter that help us see John's ideas concerning love. First, look at how he advises the treatment of the heretics in verse 10 and 11. He says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Okay, so first thing we need to clarify is this isn't just someone in error. This is a teacher of errors a heretic, a deceiver. When someone is actively deceiving others, it's not okay to act as though they're just doing fine. To act as though it's a matter of personal preference is aiding their lies. To love them, quote unquote, by welcoming them and greeting them when they are engaged in their deception is to effectively condone what they're doing. This is an important reality that we sometimes want to disregard, that by our actions and even our kindness, we can effectively condone falsehood and sin, even if we're not the ones teaching or practicing it. And the question we must ask is, am I making something unacceptable seem acceptable by my presence or participation? And we all know extreme examples. We, we get this in extreme examples, right? Like in 1 Corinthians, when, when there's that guy in the church that's sleeping with his mother-in-law and everyone's just going about business as usual and Paul kind of yells at them. He says, not, that's not even tolerated among the pagans. You need to kick that guy out. By treating him like everyone else, you're condoning his radical sin, which is not loving to the immature people that it could lead astray. And it's not loving to him because because. His sin is destructive to his soul. So the loving thing is to take this seriously enough to not just act like it's okay. And, And this is key to understanding the correction to love that John is making. He's saying love is not welcoming and greeting everyone regardless of any considerations. That's not love. In the very, this very same short letter, he says both love one another and don't even greet certain people. And if these seem in conflict to you, then you may have been infected by the same deception John is trying to correct. Love is not supporting people in whatever makes them happy. I'm sure the Gnostics were very happy to lead others into their heresy. But their happiness was not the determining factor for Christian support and encouragement. The determining factor is truth. The commands of God. The teaching of Christ. Real love takes people seriously. And takes the truth seriously. Takes sin seriously. True love is costly and deep. It's not mere tolerance or indulgence, which are parodies of love. True love is willing to be mocked and misunderstood. True love is willing to suffer and forgive. True love is willing to die on a cross for souls. True love is willing to go to great lengths for the beloved, but never to go beyond the will of God. The world has never seen greater love than the love of Christ. Love has never stooped so low or gone so far. And his love was always guided and directed by the truth and the commands of God. The love of Christ is true love. And true love is powerful and beautiful. And we could see this in this letter as well. First, it's powerful because love is the means of guarding against deception. 
That's what John is saying here. He's saying, like, when he says to love one another and walk in it because there are many deceivers in the world, that because means that there's a connection between these two things. So why would many deceivers being in the world lead John to tell us to love one another? Because mutual, brotherly, Christ-like love is powerful enough to guard our hearts against error. Love can drown out lies. The people most susceptible to lies are people desperate for love. John is saying when we witness an increasing proliferation of lies in the world, our greatest weapon for both offense and defense is to love one another. More than we need arguments and sophistication and respectability, we need love. Love for one another. Christian love. I'm not talking about loving your enemies or your neighbors right now, because that's not what John is talking about. I'm talking about loving your brother and sister in Christ. This is almost downplayed in some Christian circles as being cliquish or insular, but it is not cliquish or insular to love your family. It's vital. A family that doesn't love each other will not be equipped to love their neighbors well. And we are a family in Christ. It is right and good and natural and healthy and imperative to love one another with great love. When we begin to love one another with the love of Christ, it will guard our hearts in truth. We are safe when we are wrapped in love. The love of Christ experienced through the love of the body of Christ that protects us. And what's that love like? Well, John shows us one uh, of the more beautiful and blessed aspects of it that I love, which is vicarious joy. Look at verse four. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Now, the apostle John is not prone to use empty words as many of us are. When he says he rejoiced greatly, he rejoiced greatly. When he came to the awareness of these children of God living in the love of God, walking the walk, talking the talk, he truly and deeply and greatly rejoiced, had joy in his soul. This is a hallmark of love. Rejoicing in the lives of others. Seeing that the blessedness of someone other than you and that bringing you joy. This vicarious joy is, is key to the perfect and gigantic joy of heaven because all of us will be rejoicing not only in our own blessings in heaven, but in the blessings of everyone around us. Think of how much, I mean, I'm trying to think about, think of how much bigger your happiness would be if you had the same amount of joy in the blessings of others as you do in your own personal blessings. It's hard to imagine, but, but that is what heaven will be like. And before we even get to that unimaginably happy existence and the perfection of heaven, we get a taste of it here and now when we really love one another. This is what people are tr usually trying to say whenever they say, I'm proud of you, right? They usually aren't proud they're usually trying to express this idea of vicarious joy, which is the fruit of love. Sometimes they are proud when they've tied up their self-image in this other person, which sometimes happens. And then saying, I'm proud of you is more, should be more of a confession of sin rather than praise. But in the majority of cases, it's not really pride. It's, it's love being expressed. It's just one of those idioms that got established with the wrong word and it's probably too late to change it. 
Because in our laid back culture, it sounds too formal to say, I rejoiced greatly at your blessed success because of my deep love for you. But that's what we're trying to say in our own really lame way. When we love someone, we long for them to flourish and thrive and live good lives. And we believe the greatest life is one wrapped up in the life of Christ. So when we see evidence of his spirit in the lives of others, it leads us to greatly rejoice. The spirit within us resonates with the spirit within them. Like when the preborn John the Baptist leaped for joy in the womb whenever he came within feet of the preborn Jesus Christ. Love leads to joy. The apostle Paul said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In other words, true love it makes you really care about more than just yourself. To be spiritually invested in the lives of others. And this is honestly a good gauge of love too. Like telling you if you're actually loving another person. If something great happened to them, would it fill you with happiness? Or would you not really care that much? Love is incompatible with apathy. And it's incompatible with envy. As the famous chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not envy or boast. It also says it rejoices with the truth. That's what John is doing here. He's rejoicing with the truth in the lives of the saints. He's loving them. In verse 1, he says he loves them in the truth. And notice how he closes the letter down in verse 12. Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. To see them, to, to be with them is joy to him. That's a part of the beauty of love. Love is the path to fullness of joy. Jesus taught this explicitly in John chapter 15. He said, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus promised us his own complete joy as we love with his kind of love. And Jesus loved us by laying down his life for us. Again and again, we're told this. Ephesians 5.2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Galatians 2.20, he loved me and gave himself up for me. The Bible is clear. He loved us and, and therefore he gave himself up. The driving force was his love, but also there's another driving force. Bible says in, in Hebrews 12 that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Jesus has loved you and he loves you still because he loves you and he wants you to rejoice with his own joy. He has called you to love with him, to love like him. And this love will cost you, but it will be worth it. It cost him, didn't it? Amen. But it was worth it because his love has secured your eternal reward. And, and this is why we must abide in his teaching. As Peter said, he alone has the words of eternal life. He is too precious to neglect. At the end of verse 9, John says this astounding statement. Look at it. Whoever abides in the teaching of Christ 
has both the Father and the Son. You may have the fullness of God. You may be united to your maker and master in all his abundant joy and love by trusting in Christ, abiding in his love and truth, in his true love. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us with true love and and calling us to true love so that we may have fullness of joy. Keep us all in the truth. Make us walk in the truth and and walk in love. Guide us and, and guard us. Give us courage and wisdom in these last days. Help us love you more and love others as you love to love with the true love of Christ in the loving truth of Christ. We pray with him. Amen.